Hi everyone, this is Josh from Narrate. This past weekend for Mother's Day, Teresa Hushka spoke on how we can better practice mindfulness and engage with people on a day-to-day basis. She shared some helpful examples from the life of Jesus and how he lived with others. At the start of the message, Teresa mentioned a video on a global scattering opportunity in Ecuador. You can find that video on Narrate's Facebook and YouTube pages. My name is Teresa, and I'm excited to get to be with you guys this morning, and I do have the privilege of being married to Adam, who is normally up here getting to be with you at the Narrate Gatherings on Sunday mornings. However, this morning, he is getting to be with our three boys at the baseball field, and so there they are, my wonderful testosterone house. (laughs) I love them, though. They're great. So I'm excited to get to be here with you this morning and just get to share because honestly, I consider it such an honor to get to be a part of Narrate with you guys because you value interpersonal connections. You guys choose to get alongside people and serve our community and better our community. And not only on a local level, but as we saw in the video, on a global level. We, seven years ago, I got the chance to meet Noreen O'Leary, and we've actually gotten to be really good friends over these seven years, and she's married to Bob O'Leary, and they invited us and gave us the opportunity to connect down in Ecuador with that developing country and some of their culture and some of their disabled people that they're supporting, and just to help build that, that community up, just like we do here, only we're working alongside the people there that are volunteering and spending their time and money to better their own community. And it's really been a a wonderful opportunity. And granted, there is a conversation sometimes with mission work that the $1,500 that I spend just on the ticket to get me down there when I save my money, I could just send that money down there and that would help that developing country a lot more, right, than putting me on a plane and getting me there. However, it's just about solving a problem when you look at it that way. When you talk about how much money it takes to take us all the way from Montana down there, we should just send that money to solve the problem, right? But there's a process along the way that perhaps has more value than just solving the problem. It's getting there and getting there together. I mean, what are the, thing, what are the things that people mentioned during that video, right, on why they went. They wanted to learn things about themselves. They wanted to be together. They had been praying about it and decided this was an opportunity that they wanted to be a part of, that they wanted to connect, perhaps with narrators here, that they wanted to experience a different culture, and they just wanted to to spend time together. Sometimes people go for different reasons, but what they experience on that trip is all the same, right? Barriers are broken down. There's trans, transcendent experiences, you know, that you can't put words to between those cultures. But because we're all human, we're all of the same species, we can interact and still have value with that experience. That There's spouses, right, that people come back and they're like, oh, I really want my spouse to go down there and get to experience that same thing so that we can share in that together that people come back and they perhaps reevaluate themselves and how they spend their time or their priorities. They have a different perspective on life. They have a change of mind and a change of heart. There's all kinds of things that are hard. They're almost spiritual experiences, right? And, and it kind of brings to question, is there an interaction from person to person and in, you know, that is actually a spiritual moment, something transcendent that you can't put into words? 
Um, I love the picture of this tricycle and how Richard Rohr talks about spirituality. And he says, essentially, we have three wheels, right? And we have the text. This would be your intellect, your study, your written word that supports whatever it is that you believe. And then you have tradition. And that would be whether it's a cultural tradition within the country that you are raised in, within the family that you are raised in, values, things like that. And, and these two back wheels on a tricycle would propel people forward, right? It gives you energy, it moves you forward. But what is it that actually steers the direction of the tricycle? And Richard Rohr says that he thinks he would describe this front wheel as being experiences. Right? I think we can all think of situations in our life where we would agree, yeah, it's my experience that actually led that decision. Right? I can know what I know. I can have the values and how I was raised and the traditions that I have. But what I actually base my decisions and how I lead is through experience. I love how Carol put it in the video when she talked about her and her husband Bob. And when we do these trips and when we do hard things together, we grow closer, right? There's this exchange. There's this experience when you are in proximity of someone just because we're human. And so I love in, in Romans chapter 1, I think I love too much. Is that a phrase I've used at least four times this morning? So in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, Paul is saying, so he's far away and he's writing them a letter. And he's saying, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That, it, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so he talks about how I want to be close to you because there's an exchange that happens when we are close together. And not just a giving, 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 giving to where I'm empty and there's nothing left and now I'm bitter. But there's this mutually beneficial experience that can happen when you are together with another that you both get built up. Or perhaps that you both get torn down. Right? So it can be a gift and a curse, this fact that we as humans, it's almost like a divine nature that we have, that through experience, that's how we grow and learn and navigate life. And it's almost like all through scripture, God prioritizes that. And it's story after story after story. It's about experiences that change people and people steer and navigate life from those experiences. I love how Brandon Manning says it. In his book, um, the, the Tenderness of Christ, Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. The tenderness is what happens to you when you know that you are deeply and sincerely liked by someone. If you communicate to me that you like me, not just love me as a brother in Christ, you open up to me the possibility of self-respect, self-esteem, and wholesome self-love. The look in your eyes gives me permission to make the journey into my interior of myself and make peace with that part of myself. I mean, that is a powerful concept that the look in your eyes can give me permission to go down to those places inside of me that perhaps I'm not settled with, I don't like about myself. Or I've had experiences with people where they have torn me down and that's why I don't like those parts, right? You have that power. I have that power to look at you and build you up or tear you down. What is it? What is it about the eyes and about faces that invoke something inside that's hard to put into words? 
right? So it's Mother's Day. I'd just like to show off my boys if I could. So cute. So we had three boys, uh, all three years and under. And there they are. We got Lincoln and Justice in the middle there and Chase. And they have been a lot of fun. However, today, if I try and get them in a position where they have to pose for a picture, this is what I get. <laughs> come on, please. Oh, boys, come on. And we could take 30 minutes, and that's what we get. However, you love them anyways, right? They all have their own unique characteristics and personalities that make them them, and I value tremendously. And our middle, so he's our youngest son, but he's in the middle of that picture, Justice. He has known since he was very young, he's understand, understood that level of connection, the eye contact, the facial expressions. He has known that since he was a baby. He's always been really smiley and physical touch and connecting and very aware and mindful of his situations and perhaps what other people are feeling. Even today, he likes to make us laugh. And he likes to connect through facial experiences and through eye contact and through touch. Every time we happen to come across a situation in particular where there's something very cute and he wants me to acknowledge this cute thing. And even to look and reach out and touch and pet dogs. Every time he wants me to look at a dog and he wants me to touch and connect and value this cute dog. And why does he want to do that? Well, because our family, we have the, the knowledge that we want a clean house and we are never home and that poor dog would be stuck at our house. So we have a value that we will not have any pets. But if there's enough experiences with cute, sweet, soft, lovable dogs, maybe he could just sway and direct our family in that direction. So he understands the power of experience. Let's look real quick, if you will, with me in Mark chapter 8. Matthew, sorry. Matthew chapter 8. And we'll talk about, we're going to go through a series of times when Jesus chooses to connect with people. There seems to be a pretty steady theme. And if we could just acknowledge perhaps the simple distraction that we are talking about when Jesus is healing people. And there's kind of a scientific um, distraction that I easily notice when I'm going through scripture. And I honestly kind of have a challenge with it. I work in the medical field. Um, part of me is like, really, God? You just walk around and touch people and heal people? Well, then what do we need Obamacare and all this pain for? Just bring down a bunch of Jesuses. Well, I'll be fine. <laughs> Right? So I have the medical knowledge that supports, oh, I don't, I, I, that doesn't sit comfortably with me. I also have the personal experience that my father is deaf, and I was raised in a deaf home. And his, a majority of his young spiritual life, he was told by people in the church, elders and leaders and whatever, that if he just confessed the sin that he was holding back, he could hear again. So that's kind of some background I come from. I have a mother that has a psychological illness, and it has made her completely relationally unavailable as far as motherhood and parenting relationships go. And so there's, there's a lot that sits uncomfortable in my heart about healing. But if you could just, can we just go together, perhaps, and have a 10,000-foot view of what Jesus is doing and the value he's putting on people and what he chooses to prioritize in interpersonal connections and maybe not get so distracted with the details and the science of the healing, if you will. Adventure together with me. 
So we'll start in chapter 8. Jesus came down from a mountain. Large crowds had followed him. And a leper came to him and said, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. And it was so. He healed him. And so not only did this, this leper have a communicable skin disease that was easily contracted by any kind of proximity or touch, and Jesus in his 100% humanness took that risk, but he also perhaps recognized that lepers in that community, maybe that leper has not been touched for years, no physical touch. And there was some value to that interaction. So he was healed. Okay, got that off our list. Keep going. And he's going to Capernaum, right? And we got a centurion that stops him and says, oh, hey, Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And he said, will you come and heal him? And Jesus says, I will. Let's go. Let's go together. I'll come with. Let's go together. It's this experience together. And the centurion gives this long speech. He says, oh, no, no. I understand how it works. If you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And later on, Jesus says he's amazed with his faith. And he says, go and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And so we have two examples, right? We have the proximity of Jesus touching, and we also have the power to heal and solve the problem from far away. Okay? So Jesus shows his power in two different ways. And then he goes over to Peter's house. And if you guys have your Bibles open, it says, Peter's mother-in-law. So Jesus even chooses to heal his mother-in-law. However, thank you for laughing because... I was trying to be culturally relevant there because I don't understand sarcasm. I have an amazing mother-in-law, and so I don't get all those jokes, but I understand that some people do. (laughs) So thank you. But Jesus went, and he came into Peter's home, and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick, and he touched her hand, and she was healed. So he had to be mindful enough of his surroundings to where he would actually notice she was sick and care to stop and heal her. Right? So let's move on to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus crossed over the lake, and again on the other side, there was a large crowd, right? So we have lots of individual experiences, interpersonal connections that are perhaps changing people's lives and steering the direction they go. But you also have the individual experiences of the crowd and what they're witnessing. And so a synagogue official named Jarius came running up, and he said, My little daughter is at the point of death. Will you please come and lay your hand on her? And what did Jesus do? And he went off with him. There's a process. So it's not just a task to accomplish, but they went with together. And on the way, there's large crowds of people that are around him. And there was a woman that for 12 years had a hemorrhagic condition. And she was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And she thought to herself, I've heard of this man. And if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. My problem will be solved. And so she did it. She touched his cloak. She was healed, and Jesus, being 100% God, right, he could have went on his way and said, I got another one. Okay, I'm on my task list. I just healed somebody else. But he didn't. What did he do? He stopped, and he looked around, and he said, who touched my garment? He looked around to see the woman. Is it possible that Jesus understood that there was something else that she would miss out on if they didn't connect? if they didn't look at each other in the eye, face to face, that there was something more valuable, almost transcendent, almost spiritual, right? That they would experience a moment of God together as two human beings. So it wasn't just about being healed. It was about the interpersonal connection. 
I liked how um, Daniel Goldman, he's the author of Emotional Intelligence, he's a psychologist, I like how he addresses interpersonal interactions. And what he says is, it's about what it invokes within us, whether we pay attention, tune in, and empathize, see a need, and we help it. So the bum on the street handing him money, maybe it's not just about what they do with the money. Maybe it's about that interaction and whether or not you're able to tune in with your surroundings and be mindful enough to see a need and meet it. So there was a study in 1973. Princeton theological students were gathered in a room, and they were split into two groups. In fact, the title of that is A Study of Situational and Dispositional Variables in Helping Behavior. <laughs> There's some vocab for us this morning, right? Um, so anyhow, there's a group of students, and they split them into two groups, right? And what they wanted to know is what kind of variables influence helping behavior. Because neuroscience would support that we are predisposed to help, right? However, are there any factors that keep us from doing that? Because it doesn't seem like we're always very helpful to each other as a human race. And so they took one group, and they said, you are going to go teach across the campus on the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is the story, that the parable that Jesus told, where there are two spiritual leaders who pass by a man in need laying on the ground. And then a, the Samaritan, who was the lowest of the lowest of the socioeconomic class, stopped, gave attention to this man, and also paid for this man to get taken care of. So that's what this group is going to talk about. This other group of students, we're going to talk about something theological, right? The Trinity, something else, but nothing of helpful behavior, if you will. So they had these two groups, and the variables they wanted to throw in were hurry variables, if you will. So they took some of the students from both groups, random students, and they said, you have 20 minutes to prepare. Go ahead, take your time, don't worry about it. And then they took other students, and they said, you've got two minutes. So kind of rushed, but you're okay. And then they took who was left, and they said, you need to hurry up. You're actually already late. You've got to get over there. And so as these students, one by one, would go across the campus, they would physically have to pass by a person in need, similar to the man in the Good Samaritan story, laying there, coughing, clearly hurt, injured, needs some assistance. At some points, they actually had to physically step over this person. And so what they did was they gathered the information, and this is the results that they came up with. The hurry variable was significantly related to the helping behavior. The message variable was not whether the subject was going to give a speech on the parable of the Good Samaritan or not did not significantly affect his helping behavior. However, the amount of hurriedness induced in the subject had a major effect on the helping behavior. You'd think that they would have helpfulness on their mind considering what it was that they were going to teach, but it wasn't. They were preoccupied with themselves and their task at hand, what they had to accomplish. And this is how Daniel Goldman phrased it. When he was looking at it, he says, I'm predisposed to help you if I can. But we, or I, if I'm preoccupied with myself, ourselves, we don't fully notice each other. Right? Have you ever noticed that? Like if, if you're at a checking line and you, the checker's doing your groceries, right? And you expect them to tell you what to pay and you pay them. And it's kind of like robotic, right? Almost automatic. And then if you choose to say, Man, a busy time of day, don't you think? All of a sudden, they look up at you, and there's this eye contact moment, and there's like, per they're like a person. There's no more robot. There's a connection moment. Have you guys ever experienced that? You go things, through things robotically. Well, Daniel Goleman talks about how we have two mindsets. One is an awareness mindset. 
okay? Where you're aware of yourself, almost like your ideal self, what you would want to be, or you can function neurologically on a automatic set. And that automatic set, anytime you function on that, you know, you got the task, you're cooking the dinner and your toddler's hanging on your leg or you're driving somewhere or you've, you're listening to someone's conversation but you're not because you're thinking about the next thing you're going to say or the next place you're going to go. So when you're on that automatic function, he, he says that um, time and pressure are kind of ruling how you go. So you can have the values and priorities that you want, but if you're working in the mindset of automatic, then time and pressure are going to rule what happens for you. And so he talks a lot about mindfulness, and he defines mindfulness as this. Paying attention to what is going on in your own stream of thought, feelings, and what is going on around you. And mindfulness is a general way of preparing yourself to be compassionate when the opportunity arises. That you're able to notice the other because you're being mindful of yourself and the situation around you. So if you come with me, let's look one more time at Luke 13. And this is one of my favorite stories about Jesus and just, again, hitting on the mindfulness because he's healing on the Sabbath is what happens, but he's teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. So he has something really important that he's doing. Perhaps he's got some things on his mind. I'm supposed to be God to these people. I need to make sure they understand this, right? And so he's got some things on his mind. But there was a woman for 18 years who had been sick, had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was double, bent over double, and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. So he was mindful enough to see this woman and to want to bring her in to that proximity. And he laid his hands on her and he healed her and she um, was made erect again and began glorifying God. I love the stark contrast of the synagogue because he comes up and indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day, <laughs> right? I mean, perhaps he's a bit predisposed with his own priorities, right? He's not even aware of this woman as a person in need, and who knows how many other Sabbath days she came, or maybe during the six days that she, of work where healing was allowed to be done. I just love that picture that Jesus was continually mindful of his awareness. And I feel like, man, sometimes I can really work on that. I don't know about you guys. Uh, Kim, or Karen Armstrong is an ex-nun, and she is a historical religious historian. She has written many books of religious comparison, and I love how she takes an angle. We've all heard the golden rule, right? Where you've got you know, do unto others that you would want do to you, or don't do to others what you wouldn't want have done to you, right? The positive and the negative versions. And those are kind of just a bunch of words. But Karen, I love her phrasing of it because what it does is it causes me to be a little bit introspective and maybe give some, some depth to what those words mean. So let's look at what she says. Look into your own heart and discover what it is that causes you pain. And then refuse under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anybody else. And then she goes on to Confu quote Confucius, where he says, living the golden rule all day and every day, you dethrone yourself from the center of your world, and you put another there. And you transcend yourself, and you bring yourself into the presence of God. 
something that goes beyond what we know in our ego-bound existence. Isn't that true? I mean, does that put a few words that we can experience perhaps a part of God or a moment, a spiritual moment together when we choose to be aware? This morning, if you don't mind, instead of praying and ending, but as the band comes up, if you guys would all stand, please, I'd like to say a benediction over, to- over you so that we can all be together in our experiences and proximity of each other. So may you, this week, have mindful interactions with people. And may you, the look in your eyes, give someone else the courage to face their inner self and perhaps the things that they don't like. And may you get to experience interpersonal people interactions that build you up and them, and in that, transcend and experience God. like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.